Thank you for listening to this message from Rooted and Resolved. Let me ask you if you would, take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to the book of Luke chapter 2. As we have done over the last couple of weeks, we're going to continue in this little series that we're looking at together and be looking at a thrill of hope. Thinking about the fact that in that, in that line of, of O Holy Night, that Christmas carol, it says that Jesus is a thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. And so what we're thinking about is the fact that all of us, the things that we encounter, the things we go through, just life has this way of making us weary. Those that are apart from Christ and do not know him are weary from the burden of sin that they carry and Christ is the one who offers hope for those things. And so when we started, we started thinking about the anticipation that hope brings and we looked at the Old Testament uh, saints and how they were looking forward to a coming Messiah. And really the nation of Israel and their hopes, what we the nation of Israel kind of represents people as a whole in the fact that all of us are weary. We looked at the struggles that they had been through and how they were looking for for a coming Messiah. And you and I can identify with that because the life just has this way of making us weary. Then the last time we were together, we talked about the announcement that, that Jesus would be born, Hope's announcement, and we focused on Mary and Joseph. And Mary and Joseph, we know when the announcement comes to them, we talked a lot about that unexpected event that gets dropped in our life that causes us to become hopeless because the future is uncertain. But Jesus offers to us... a uh, a sovereign God who holds the future in his hands, and there's a thrill of hope in that for us when we're facing an uncertain future. This morning, we want to think about hope's adoration and think about how hope is, uh, how worship and hope are connected. And really, in thinking about this, we're going to talk today, as we have done, connecting some, some, some figures in that Christmas story and today we're going to be using the shepherds and the wise men to do that because the shepherds and the wise men offer us this interesting contrast, don't they? Here are two different men, two different groups of men from different ends of the socioeconomic ladder who come together at the birth of Jesus in this moment of adoration and worship. And so I think there's some lessons that we can learn from them about what it means to bow at the feet of Jesus and how hope that Jesus brings calls us to worship him. You know, I want you to think for a minute about how maybe we think about hope and how we get discouraged. When we get discouraged sometimes, this, this is my experience, I don't know if it's yours, but just think for a minute about how this happens for us. We say, well, God, I want you to do something about all these problems. God, I'm bringing all these things to you because my heart's heavy. And see, God, I need you to do something about my problems because really, God, I, I really, when I go to church, I, I don't worship you. And Lord, I'm finding a hard time, you know, exalting you just in my personal life. And, and Lord, I'm, I'm frankly, I'm angry at you because of these things. And so, Lord, if you'll just take care of my problems, that would fix it. And then I would be able to worship in the way that I'm supposed to. God, I want you to fix my problems so that I can feel the way that I'm supposed to feel about you. Right? But that's really the cart before the horse kind of mentality. 
What happens is that when we come with a heart of worship, when we come with a heart that adores him, he changes our, our, our thought process. He changes everything about us. And what begins to happen is, is that we realize that worship is kind of this remedy for changing not our circumstances, as our play has talked about, but in changing our hearts and to fill our hearts with worship, which fills our hearts with hope for the future. And so let's talk about these guys. I'm going to read these two accounts together. We're going to start in Luke chapter 2 and read two pretty lengthy passages of Scripture just so that we... Um, just so that we're familiar with them. Here's what I have, feel like I have been reading familiar passages a lot lately. And it's always best just to kind of forget that we know them. And let's just approach them as if it's the first time. Let's read starting in Luke chapter 2 and verse 8. It says that in the same region which Jesus was born, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they went with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Listen to verse 20. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. Now take a little moment and turn with me to Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 2. We read that about the shepherds in Luke 2. and We're going to... Look at Matthew 2 for a bit, and on these kind of messages, it's good to have, a, it's good to have picked up a bulletin already this morning. you got a bookmarker, you can find a place to hold there for Luke 2, and then as we read here in Matthew 2, we're going to start in the first verse here and read about the wise men. Remember, the wise men come sometime later. It's not there at the stable at the birth of Jesus, but their story reads this way. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come. And worship him. After listening to the king, 
They went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with ex- exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. What we want to do today are take these two accounts. Take these shepherds and these wise men, these two men who are different in many ways, and we want to make some comparisons and contrast them in certain ways and see what these two groups of men can tell us about worship and its connection to hope. I want us to start by looking at these two men who have a shared role. The the wise men and the shepherds have a shared role. Now, when you first look at them, it seems as if these two people could not be any more different. The shepherds, when we read about the shepherds, the shepherds are your ultimate blue-collar worker. You know, they're Bubba, out in the field keeping the sheep. You know, they work outside, they live outside, they live among those sheep. They smell wonderful, shepherds do, right? They're probably going to be a little bit crass and a little bit rough. Shepherds did not have a very good um, reputation in society. Shepherds were really outcast. Religiously, their, their work made them ceremonially unclean. They spent weeks at a time away from the temple, so they were unable to become ritually clean, And so they sat out in the field, um, and they were not very credible among the people. They were seen as unscrupulous and shady, and they were not trusted by the general public. Their, Their testimony wasn't valid in a court of law, we will learn about the shepherds, because they were just seen as scoundrels. Shepherds were on this low end. You didn't, you weren't wealthy as a shepherd. You weren't a wealthy man if you were a shepherd. You think about these poor, humble men who were out in the field, and when you think about their their lowly place, they represent one kind of area of that socioeconomic strata that we might think about. Now, the wise men, as we talk about them, let's just be honest, the wise men, we don't know about the wise men. They're, They're really kind of enigmatic people when you think about them in Scripture. We don't know a lot about them. We sing, we three kings. You know, we three kings of Orient are. We sing that that Christmas carol. But here's the truth. We don't know that there were three of them. We're making an assumption based on the gifts, the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh, but we don't know that there were three of them. We know there was more than one. We do know that. We don't know how many. And and that they probably weren't even kings. When we say that, we, we use that as kings, but... The role of what these wise men actually were is a little bit blurry. They were most likely astronomers and men of science. They were probably from an area like like that Babylon kind of area, maybe that Iraq or that Iran-Persian kind of area. They obviously were astrologers who studied the stars and were looking at the stars They most likely likely were very wealthy, and so even though they weren't kings, 
we can think about them in the term of instead of thinking about a king as sitting on a throne and having a crown, they were kings in terms of wealth and influence. They probably had a very prominent position in society. People looked up to them. They were, they were academic and very intelligent, and so they most likely taught other people, and there were others that looked to them. And so while, we, while, we're, pretty sure that there were, there, while we're pretty sure that they weren't kings, we can think about the fact that they were wealthy and part of the nobility, and so they represent the class that's at the opposite end of the spectrum from the shepherds. And so knowing what we know about those two groups, it seems like they, they don't share very much at all, that there's not much that is shared between them. But there are some ways in which these two men are similar. Something that's interesting to me, when you think about this idea of being a king or a ruler or having influence and that sort of idea, that's not what a shepherd was. Shepherd didn't have much influence. A shepherd wasn't one who was wealthy or, or had any kind of power in that way. But it's interesting to me that our Lord identifies as both king and shepherd. Isn't that interesting? In fact, think for just a minute about something that we read today. If you've still got your Bible open in Matthew chapter 1, look at, at I mean Matthew chapter 2, look at verse 6. And, and let's read this. What we, what we, re- we read this before, but you'll notice if your Bible is like mine, maybe, it's, mine is indented differently. It's set apart from the other verses of text because this is a quotation. Matthew here is quoting Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. And so there's this prophecy about the fact that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. But let's read it together. Read this verse with me. It says, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Listen to what it says about Jesus who will be born there. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Here's this connection between king and shepherd, this ruler who would shepherd the people of God. In Scripture, there's more than one occasion that the king, a good king, is is compared to a shepherd. The same way that a shepherd would care for a flock of sheep, an ideal king, a just king, a good king, would be one who would care for his people like a flock of sheep. Not one who would abuse them and exploit them and simply take from them and never give, which is, frankly, what most governments do, right? I got a big amen on that one from somewhere in the back. And if, if that's the case, a good king is going to be one who shepherds and cares for and provides. Listen to this verse. This is a great verse, Psalm 78 and verse 72. This is in reference to King David, but listen to how it describes David's rule. It says, with upright heart... He shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. Isn't that interesting that as a king, in this role of king, in this role of one who's noble, who has influence, there's a connection here with this shepherd figure. When you think about the connection between these two men and how both of them received these signs and came to bow at the feet of Jesus, it's interesting that it was not made to... Emperor Augustus or King Herod or the religious leaders in Jerusalem, when the word came, when the signs came, came to these two groups, low, poor, dirty shepherds, perfumed, 
wealthy, influential rulers, wise men. If you look at, turn with me to Luke chapter 2. We were, we were there before. Luke chapter 2 and verse 10, the angels come and they bring this, this message. And, and in verse 10, we're actually reading about this singular angel. But the message that comes in Luke 2 and verse 10 is integral to understanding kind of this connection and what it means about worship today. The angels say, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. You see, the role that these two men share, Jesus came not just for the rich and the wealthy. Jesus didn't come just for the poor. Jesus came for all people. The, the role of shepherd and wise men is to represent humanity. And as the shared role that they have is this shared need that every single person alive has for salvation. There's not one of us that is righteous, not even one of us that are righteous. All of us are despicable sinners who do not seek after God. And that being the case... Being, being born with that natural sinful nature about us. All of us are in need of a Savior. When this Savior is born, it's good news and it's a thrill of hope for all people. It doesn't matter where you are or what your background is. And I'm going to tell you that what we're talking about right now, what I'm saying right now, this is not just some uh, uh, big like hope for the world, peace for the world kind of message. When you get down to the nitty gritty, think about how we view the gospel. Have you ever not shared the gospel or not had a conversation or not developed a relationship with someone because you felt like they were beneath you? Maybe they weren't very clean. Maybe they were at Walmart with sweatpants that were dirty and house shoes that were tattered and a shirt that was ripped and they shuffled across the floor like this and you went around rather than having some kind of conversation with that person. See, sometimes we'll fail to share the gospel with those sort of people, with those people that enter into our life because we feel in some ways like they are beneath us. But let's just be honest, that same feeling that we have there, we will also have when we don't develop the relationship with the person who has the big house and the nice car and it's gated and we feel like we're outside of that world and that person is not they're almost untouchable to us. The same fear, the same thing that's rooted in that is that we will reach out many times to people that are just like us. And do you know what will happen if we as a church simply reach out to people that are just like us? Everybody that will be here will be just like us. But do you know who he's called us to reach? The world. The world. Go and make disciples of all nations. This gospel, this message of hope that Jesus brings, his birth, it is good news of great joy for all the people. It is for everyone. And so when we share and when we choose to share, it's important to remember that no matter whether you are lowly shepherd or very wealthy wise man, we are all in the same boat. You know, Zach Brown saying we're all in the same boat, fishing from the same hole, right? 
We're all in the same boat in that regard. Every one of us need a Savior to come and to radically change our lives. We all need Jesus, and these two groups of men show us that. The second thing I want you to see about these two men together, they have a shared role, but I want you to see that they have a shared recognition. Both shepherds and wise men, they come to see baby Jesus as the Son of God. And what's interesting and what we want to focus on in this section is that they did not come to that conclusion on their own. They did not just, just out of nowhere show up in Bethlehem to worship this newborn king. There was a revelation from heaven that both of them received to tell them about the good news that Jesus brought, the hope that Jesus would bring. If you think about there in that Luke 2 passage, when the news comes about the baby Jesus to the shepherds, it comes by way of angelic messengers. When you read there, they're tending their sheep. It says that they're tending their sheep there in the fields outside of Bethlehem. Bethlehem would have been, uh, remember uh, Joseph and Mary going there because it is the city of David. And Joseph is an ancestor, or, or not an ancestor, I guess he's a descendant of David. And, and he shows up in Bethlehem to go back to that place for the census. These were the same fields in Bethlehem where, where David had tended sheep. You know, it might have been those same areas where David had watched sheep as a boy. Bethlehem was fairly close to, the, to Jerusalem. Bethlehem was about five or six miles away from Jerusalem. And so many of these sheep that they may have been watching, it may have been a resource for those sheep that would have been used in the temple at sacrifice. It would have been something close and in the region for that. These shepherds are tending their sheep outside the, in the field when it says that in, in verse 9, an angel, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, one singular angel. He tells them this message would be good news and great joy for all the people. He tells them that, the, that there would be a baby born in the, in the city of David who would be Christ, who would be the Messiah. These shepherds would have been of Jewish descent, and so they would have understood or have heard about the Messiah, longed for his coming in the same way that Simeon and Anna had possibly. But then, after that announcement comes, it says that there's a whole host of angels that appear, and they praise God. Now, you remember how we said last week, or we said in previous weeks, that we've heard the Christmas story so many times that it has lost its shock value for us? I don't know if you have, I don't know when the last time was that you were outside at night, away from things. But sometimes when you're like that, uh, Little noises or strange little things, they stand out when you're out there by yourself. Now, I want you to imagine what it is for an angel of the Lord to appear. I want you to imagine what it is for the bright light to appear. If you're just in a campground and about 9 o'clock, uh, uh, somebody shows up late and here's a truck and a, and a camper and headlights shine through your thing, you can take notice. And that's just headlights from a truck. Think about what it is for an angel of the Lord to appear to you out of nowhere and there to be this light that's shown around them and this angelic choir that appears. If you're a shepherd out in the field, you don't have doubts that this is the Messiah, the Son of God. It has been very clearly revealed to you that this baby is different and special. And so most obviously what they say next is, hey, Let's go over to, remember Bubba in the field? Let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has been told to us. 
And they go. Obviously, you want to go because you've just heard this news and it's come in such a dynamic way that you have to go and see what's happening over there. And when they show up, they recognize and notice that this is the Son of God and you see them bowing down. In both passages, the last verse that we read, Luke 2 and verse 20 is the key verse here. The shepherds, when they encounter the baby, it results in this glorif- they had this reaction. They were glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard. The wise men, back in Matthew chapter 1, in a very similar way, they had a divine revelation about this baby that had been born. Their, their revelation was this star that appeared in the sky. Now, of course, these astrologers would notice the star, but I want you to think for a minute about what made this star special. Maybe it was new and different and out of place, and it was not on a chart or a map of the sky that they had anywhere. Maybe that's what stood out to them. Some people have tried to uh, explain this away as some kind of a, na- a natural phenomenon, like a cluster of stars or some kind of abnormal alignment. And, and that may account for the brightness of the star that they saw, but we have an interesting detail in the text that it led them to the place where Jesus lay. That's unusual. It's very unusual for a star that seems to be so way out there. This seems much more akin to the, remember in the, in the story of Moses and the children of Israel, how they go across the wilderness and it's the, shina, the Shekinah glory of the Lord leads them. You know, there's like this cloud by day, this fire by night kind of picture that leads them. This idea of the glory of the Lord leading them to a place. When I look and think about this story, I guess kind of a question that I would have if I'm just trying to place it all together and think about that these men from the east of where they were, somewhere over there in that area, in that Babylon or Persian area over there where they come from, one of those kind of cultures and backgrounds, why follow this star? Like, why, why does this star mean something to them? Because when they show up, in Jerusalem, they say, where is he to be born, the king of the Jews? Somewhere in their mind, they have associated this star with a king that would be born. So how does that happen? First of all, you probably know that maybe in in this time there was, we could call it superstition, whatever you want to call it, the idea that they would predict or try to think about the rise of certain rulers by these astrological signs. So maybe it's just that. These, what the, the, I mentioned a while ago that the shepherds come from a Jewish background. These men quite possibly come from a pagan background. It's just looking for the prediction by some kind of these means. They're looking for omens or symbols about the rise of a future ruler. It could be that they're familiar with, let's say they come from that Babylonian area. You know, many years before this, the, the, the Hebrews were there as, as exiles, you know, Maybe some of those Old Testament prophecies and those texts, they had been studying and they were looking for it. Some have even suggested that these men may have even been of Jewish you know, descent and that they were, they were just following those things and also looking for the coming Messiah. It seems as if they're not familiar with all of it because they come to Jerusalem. They're unfamiliar with that text in Micah about him being born in Bethlehem, so maybe they were just men who were studying manuscripts that had been left behind. 
we pick up their story right in the middle and about how they came to Jerusalem, it could be that they had received some sort of special revelation from God himself. We don't, we don't know really what brought them there, but they had associated this star with a new king that would be born. What's interesting to me about all of that is, is that both shepherds and wise men do not come to this on their own. Both of them would recognize him as king. They would both recognize him as the son of God. These lowly Jewish shepherds and these noble pagan scientist priests, whatever they were, they come to bow down before him and this only comes because God had revealed it to them. You know, that's how it is with us too. You and I just don't make a decision to follow Jesus. The Bible is very clear in the book of Romans that all of us are sinners, and because of our sinful nature, none of us seek after God. We don't look for God. We don't look to worship him. We don't look to necessarily know anything about him. We don't have a desire in that way. We only know what we know about God because God has revealed it to us. It's not a thing that we can comprehend apart from him and the power of his spirit opening our eyes to that sort of thing. That's the way it is in salvation. Those of you that are here that are believers in Christ Jesus, if you kind of rewind back to that day that you came to Christ, this is how it was in my life. The moment that I experienced the conviction of the Holy Spirit, I had no more information in my brain than I had two weeks before, one week before, five minutes before. But there was something that happened when the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart and revealed my need to me about Jesus. Everything had changed in that moment. I recognized it was, there was an urgency that I needed him because I was apart from him and I was not right with him. Maybe you can go back to that moment in your mind where he showed you that you were a sinner and apart from him. And this recognition came that he was the son of God and very clearly you were not. There was a stark difference between his holiness and your sinfulness. And in that moment, he calls us. We do not know what we know about God apart from the Spirit. It was that way in salvation. That's how we come. The Bible is very clear that no one comes to the Father. No one comes to Christ unless the Spirit draws them. We don't make a decision to come to Christ. We respond to his calling by faith. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, in verse 9, it talks about how the Spirit reveals things to us. It says, but as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. It's interesting to me that these men from two different backgrounds two different kind of strata of society, they come to recognize him as the son of God. And listen to me, that's nothing to, to kind of scoff at because there are many people who live their whole lives and never come to see him as the son of God. They never recognize him as such. And listen, if you're here this morning and the Holy Spirit would speak to your heart and you would feel that conviction that I'm talking about of the Holy Spirit, you recognize that things are not right between you and him. Make a beeline for him. Come to him. Because it's in him that we have hope for that to be resolved in our heart. 
It's this shared role that all of us are sinners and this shared recognition that he is the son of God. But notice their shared reaction. Notice how this re- the result that comes in both cases and what should be the natural result in our lives. As I mentioned before, the final verses of both passages that we read, Luke 2 and verse 20 and Matthew 2 and verse 11, tell us that both shepherds and wise men bow in reverence before the newborn king. The shepherds come and see this baby born in the manger, and that's a strange thing anyway, isn't it? You know, the angels told them this will be the sign for you. This is how you'll notice that, that, that you found the right baby because it's a baby in a manger, a place where a baby's not supposed to be. And once they find that baby, it says that when they leave that place, everybody they see, they're telling about that baby. And they're rejoicing and they're worshiping and they're praising what God has done because the Messiah that they have heard about their entire lives has now arrived. They're rejoicing and praising him. Matthew 2 tells us that those wise men come, they bow down, they they bring those expensive gifts and they bow down before him and they worship him. And once they recognize the divinity, the power of that baby in the manger, they were compelled to worship him. And the truth is, is that the same should be true for you and I. When you and I come to a recognition of who he is and he convicts our heart and we, and we honor and exalt him as Lord, the very natural thing for us to do is to worship and honor him. If you're a believer in Christ Jesus and you find it difficult to worship corporately and or privately, something needs to be checked in our, in our walk with him. We need to check in our life. We need to examine our hearts and understand why that is. Because this genuine, true worship is what he calls from us. Jesus would tell that woman at the well that he longs for us to worship him in spirit. That doesn't mean in the Holy Spirit. It means in spirit, zeal, passion. Worship him in spirit and in truth. That's how he longs for us to worship him and it is what he is worthy of. Not all worship, not all, let me back up, not all acts of worship are genuine. Do you remember in this story how Herod tells the wise man, hey guys, when you find that baby, come and tell me about it because I want to worship him too. Well, that sounds great, doesn't it? But it's not genuine. Sunday after Sunday, in houses of worship all around us, sadly here too, we come into this place and every act of worship is not a genuine one. It's the habit we're in. It's the thing that we're supposed to do. Grandmama did it, and good people do this, so we come in here and we do this together. But if we're not considering that baby in the manger, his divinity, his power, his holiness, and our size and sinfulness in relation to it, we will never exalt him as such. If we walk into this place and worship is about our own preferences, our own desires, or what we are getting out of it, we have missed the boat here. We've missed the boat. When we gather for worship, everything is to lift him up, is to exalt him. Everything we sang about this morning, right? Do you know what's happening in the barn? It's all about Jesus. Come and see this thing that God has done. 
this first Noel, the, 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 on that day when, when the message came to those shepherds, it was all about this baby Jesus. What child is this? It's baby Jesus. Everything that we sang about this morning is to lift him up. Such great song selections for everything we're talking about this morning, about how both shepherds and wise men, and what a beautiful picture this is from people of all different backgrounds, all different cultures, all different things coming together and bowing down at the feet of Jesus that he may be lifted up and exalted in this place. That's what we're to be doing. That's what we're to be doing here on Sunday morning. It's what the church of God is to be doing as we, the church universal, as we come and we worship him. It should be natural for those who know him. You know, in thinking about, um, in thinking about worship this week, I, I, I read several different things, several different things that were not even really about the Christmas story, but were just about worship in general. Because this is a beautiful picture to me. When we think about hope and the hope that, that we need, I, I believe that hope is found in worship. You know? Worship, we worship a God who is, it's a personal relationship with him. And he cares about us and he does so many things to provide for us that we don't even recognize and we take for granted. I came across this quote this week and I want to kind of close with it. In fact, it, it's, it's an old quote. John Trapp is the, this Anglican guy, I want to say from the 1700s, and that's where it, it comes from him. And so I want these guys to put it on the screen. We're going to read it together. But it, it made an impact on me this week. Let's read it. John Trapp says, He lets out his mercies to us for the rent of our praise and is content that we may have the benefit of them so that he may have the glory. If you would, just leave that up for just a little bit, Phil. Let's walk through that because that's not easy. That's dense, isn't it? And there's a lot there. Do you see what's happening there? Look at the first part. He lets out his mercy. Now, even a long time ago, evidently, in England, they used this kind of phrase. You know, you don't have an apartment for rent over there. You have an apartment to let. He lets out. He, he doles out to us. He lets out what belongs to him, these mercies of his, the provision that he has. He lets it out to us. But what's the rent? His praise. He provides and he shows us mercy. And he, he, he does for us. Christ does on the cross for us that we might honor him and that we might exalt him and that we might give him the rent of our praise. But look at that next bit. And he is content that we may have the benefit of them. God loves to dote on his children. And he provides for us and he gives so many things that we don't need and so certainly things that we don't deserve. And he is content to let out those mercies to us. Notice why. So that he may have the glory. Do you know that he doesn't let out mercy to you for you to have comfort? He doesn't let out mercy to you that your life would be comfortable and would be perfect and would be wonderful. All of those mercies that he has let out to us. He's glad that we enjoy them. They're all to be for the benefit of his glory. You know what else I thought about with this verse that really hit me this week or this, uh, this uh, quote that really hit me this week? God is giving to us mercies. Now, that's a, that's a, um, uh, 
that's a general word, but I just want to think about some mercies that you have in your life, right? Maybe it's a nice house to live in. Maybe it's a family. Maybe it's a car to drive, all those things. Maybe it's, maybe it's money to pay your bills. Maybe it's, you know, all those things. All of those things that God gives to us, did you know that God doesn't need any of those things? He doesn't need any of those things. He has no, he is self-sufficient and has no need for any of that. He's content to give it to us. But there is one thing that he desires from us. It's the glory. Let me tell you a secret. That's a thing that we don't need. It, it does something to our sinful nature when we receive glory, doesn't it? We don't deserve it, and we don't know what to do with it. it. Doesn't this arrangement work really well for God who lets out mercies to us for the rent of his praise, that we would give back to him a thing that we don't need and we don't deserve for him to have all the glory because he has blessed us? This time of year, it's wonderful to think about the benefits of his mercy and how he has blessed us and what we have as we enjoy time together as a family and as we're able to have resources to be able to exchange gifts with one another and all those things. But the story that we looked at this morning is telling us that this Savior came for the whole world. He came as a benefit for all that would believe on him. He came as a benefit for whosoever will come. The question this morning is, would you come? Thank you for listening to this podcast. Rooted and Resolved is a ministry of Center Grove Baptist Church. You can find us at centergrovebaptist.com.